The reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not I would not be a fool, because it would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from coming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a message from Satan, to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will not boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Today, friends, we are considering God's promise of sufficient grace. A straightforward statement in itself. To some, this is confirmation of what they already know. Enough spiritual bread to keep them going for another week. God has promised sufficient grace. Blessed be the name of the Lord. May he live forever. May his love endure forever. What do I mean by that? Well, to some here, that's all right. After the worship and that one statement, that's all they need. Confirmation of God's love and God's promise of sufficient grace. You see, that's a little meal in itself, a spiritual meal. But we're looking for more than that here this morning, aren't you? You're looking for a full three-course meal from this sermon. In a year, we have approximately a thousand meals. You know, 20 weeks, uh, a week, say 52 weeks, so say a thousand meals a year. In a year, if you regularly attend this fellowship, you will hear approximately a hundred sermons. In ten years, this would be ten thousand meals and one thousand sermons. How many of you listen to it, Herbie? <laughs> 50, Fifty years times a thousand, yeah. Are we certain that you can't remember all the meals you've had? I'm sure that you can't remember all the meals that you had. But they've kept you going, haven't they? 
They've sustained you physically. They've sustained you. You'll be able to get up in the morning, get about your work or retirement, whatever it is. The meals you had have sustained you physically. And it's the same with sermons. You can't remember them. You can't remember all the sermons you've heard. You'd be struggling to remember last week's, if you're like me. But they've sustained you. They've sustained you spiritually. They've kept you going when those hard things hit you, when you hear things you don't want to hear, when news comes that you don't want to hear. What you've heard, those spiritual words, sustain you week by week. And that's why we are sitting here this morning, to take spiritual substance from this morning's meeting. God has promised us sufficient grace. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His love endures forever. It's a light spiritual snack. But I endeavour to expand the content of this reading and allow us to grasp the wonderful promise of God. I'm going to attempt this message to give you in four sections. What is grace? How do we receive it? How we can lose it? And finally, the grace of God is our only way forward. What is grace? We understand in the text what God's promise is. We know what a promise is. Uh, sufficient means enough to meet a need or purpose. So we have a promise of sufficient. But grace, grace, understanding what grace means is not straightforward. One commentary I read on grace concluded, the freedom of God and the perplexity of human behavior have meant that both biblical authors and theologians fail finally to penetrate the depth and mystery of grace. It's not straightforward, friends. It's not straightforward. You see, in the Old Testament, there is no single word that is equivalent to the Greek word for grace, chavis. Uh, I'm not a linguistic scholar. Julie will have to call on your help later. But you see, the Old Testament, there's no concept of grace. The closest Hebrew word is hen, which indicates the favor shown to an inferior by a superior. But grace was clearly shown in God's choice of Abram and Israel and God's revelation of himself to Moses. I think it's worth looking at Exodus 34, verses 5, 6, and 7. Exodus 34, verses 5, 6, and 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. 
You've got an Old Testament concept there of grace. Grace here contains an element of compassion. And many of the Old Testament names have the root in Hain, such as Hananiah, which the Greek was Ananias, Haniel, Hanan, and Hannah, all come from that Greek, that's uh, from that Hebrew word Hain. In the New Testament, however, we see the Greek word uh, charis translated as grace. In Paul's speech in Antioch, in Acts 13, verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Peter, in Acts 15, verse 11, No, we believe it is through the grace, O Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. You see, the coming of Jesus was the birth of true grace. The coming of Jesus was the birth of true grace. Grace in the New Testament is summed up in God's provision of salvation. You know, we've got the very good modern concept of grace uh, using the, the letters, God's riches at Christ's expense. Our Lord Jesus sacrificed his life for us. He died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. That is the ultimate grace. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, can we get that one up to in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10? There's a great paragraph here on... Grace. I'd love to have expounded this paragraph, but the concepts of time and my mental ability don't enable me to do any better than what's actually written in the Word. So if we can follow through this, it's such an amazing chapter. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. Take note of this, friends, because this sums up where we are at. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins. Straightforward, isn't it? In which you used to live and followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit which is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us 
in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. This is not from yourself. This is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful words, which sums up exactly where we are at, folks, and what is grace that Christ give us. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. You're all God's workmanship. Believe it or not, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How do we receive this grace? How do we receive this grace? It is, of course, by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. The start of the acceptance is that you realize you are not living in accordance to God's word. Basically, you were living in sin. This is the start. Unless you people get to that point, they can't start to move on. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul in Second Corinthians thinks of his dramatic revelation of Christ, a truly momentous event. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, he's highlighting the visions, etc. he had. Dramatic conversion. The acceptance of Jesus by individuals takes many forms, from dramatic conversions such as Paul's, to individuals accepting Jesus after hearing the first gospel message. Others, as we know, spend 10, 20, 30 years hearing of the gospel, and spend their lives resisting God before they eyes are opened and their hearts opened to the love of Christ. The acceptance of Jesus must be accompanied by a genuine repentance. Essential, a genuine repentance. The acceptance of Jesus and the receipt of grace must be accompanied by a genuine repentance. Our acknowledgement that our past life has been in sin that basically we were sinners and if we carried on, we would receive God's judgment. This sounds harsh, but it's the truth, folks. If people carry on in sin, they will receive God's judgment. We must get that over to people. This is a reality. You know, I won't attempt to go into define sin, but it's basically doing anything that's outside the will of God. From the very minor to the major, it's sin. And people are outside the will of God. Genuine repentance is needed. You know, we all recall the story of Lot's wife, don't we? You know, moving away from Sodom and Gomorrah. She looked back with some longing for that past life. And she was turned to a pillar of salt. A completely useless object. And that's really can apply to a so-called Christian 
who longs, tries walking with God, but looks back on their past life with longing, they become a truly useless object because they're not walking with God. We accept Jesus as our Savior, our Redeemer. He has stood in our place. His life paid the price for our sins. By his death and our acceptance of him as our Savior, we have access into the throne room of God. You know, the the events after the crucifixion, the curtain being torn from top to bottom, indicated that we can move into the very throne room of God. Prior to that, it was only the chief priest could go in. But it's been, Jesus opened up the throne room of God. And I was loved uh, Stephen's final speech when he looked up and saw God in heaven. He was allowed to see into the throne room. Oh, dear friends, it's all available to us if we move on in faith. True believers, moving on in a new life in Christ with a sure knowledge that God's grace is sufficient. Oh, how we need this grace. We live in this world surrounded by unbelief. Anybody disagree with that statement? We live in this world surrounded by unbelief. There are temptations placed in our way. The evil one, Satan, abounds. We must adhere to God's word. You will hear people say, Times have changed. We must change with them. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. They were saying this in the time of Nehemiah, 444 years BC. That's 2,500 years ago almost. Times have changed. We must move on. No, they haven't. Has our God changed? Has the Bible changed? We must adhere to God's word. Throughout church history, People, nations, read through the Old Testament, it's just continually telling of to and fro of people, how they come to God, get successful, are given great mercies and grace, and then forget about God and drift away. The story of life. Throughout history, people, nations are seen moving away from God, yet by God's grace, men and women of the faith are raised up to call people back to their faith. We think at times of Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, the great Welsh revivalists. Are you going to do it, Myla? Yeah, amen. Why not, isn't it? Raising men and women up to call people back to God. It is by adhering to God's word that we will continue to receive God's grace, God's sufficient grace. Sufficient. It will be enough. It will be enough. And what more do you want than enough? You see, human weakness provides the ideal opportunity for the display of divine power. How can we lose grace? How can we lose grace? The sufficient grace of God can be lost simply by moving out of God's will. Not doing God's work or doing what he wants us to do or doing what he doesn't want us to do. We can lose God's grace basically by sinning. If we are Christians and go down this road of sin 
and we attempt to still profess our faith, then we are rightly called hypocrites. We must keep a short account with God. Remember this grace, this virtually undescribable benefit that God has given us. This great favor of God is a precious gift to the believer, and we must not lose it. I've mentioned sin as a barrier to grace. There are also the little foxes that Satan sends into our lives. You've all been there. You get up in the morning and, oh, it's all great. Hallelujah, I'm with God. Start, go downstairs and quarrel with the wife. Ah, there you start on your way to church in the car and somebody cuts you up. Whoops, grace gone again. You come to the door of the church and you're not greeted as you think fit. Oh, grace gone again. You come in and the hymn is too fast, too loud, too slow. Oh, God's again. The pastor's not preaching and you got this other idiot in the front. Grace lost again. You see, we've all been there, haven't you? You've all found yourselves not losing your way to God through some minor little fox. Yeah? Anybody who hasn't felt like that at some time in their life? No, we've all been there. We've all been party to these events, the small events that creep into our lives and come between us and God. I read in a book once that would describe these things as grace killers. Grace killers. At times, we are in receipt of these grace-killing actions. At times, we are responsible for these grace-killing actions. Yes, friends, it's uh, something we've all got to look up. Then, then uh, we, we, you hear these things. Yes, I know these things. I normally sit with you. Our off switch is too easily operated. Anybody operated the off switch here this morning already? Yeah? Yeah, come on now. No, there's a few here. <laughs> we let minor things distract us from God and God's grace. The grace is still there, but we are not in a position to receive it. The devil enjoys every time we allow our grace to be switched off to be affected. You know, we've, the C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtip Files. If you haven't read that book, please read it. And you can see how the, the sort of way a devil could work. Oh, he's, he's with the Lord. Now we'll just get something to do. I know he doesn't like uh, this and that. We'll, we'll send a bit of that for him. But we've got to rise above this, friends. The wonderful gift of sufficient grace can leave us if we harden our hearts. Harden our hearts. The Bible refers to hardening of hearts many times. For example, Proverbs 28, verse 16. Proverbs 28, verse 14, sorry. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. He who hardens his heart falls into trouble. If we harden our hearts, nothing can get in, including God's love and grace. You know, we call at this time the story of Elisha and the poor woman who was destitute after her husband died and the debt collectors were going to come and take her sons as slaves. 
And the prophet Elijah said, what have you got? He said, I've only got a little oil and some flour. He said, go and get some empty jars. And she went down, scoured around the neighbours for empty jars. She came back from the little bit of oil. She kept pouring until every jar was full. And the oil didn't stop flowing until the, she ran out of jars. And it's like us, folks. That's a picture for us to take. If we harden our hearts, Dr. Yeh, we have four vessels in the hearts. If we harden our hearts, nothing can get in. Not even grace can get in. It's a picture for us to take. The oil of faith, the oil of salvation, the oil of grace won't get into us if we harden our hearts. And these small things that harden our hearts, we've got to rise above things. The spiritual message to us is that as long as our heart is open, God will fill it. But God can't fill a hardened, closed heart. Let us all endeavour to rise above these things, these little foxes planted by Satan. See, we all must not lose this ability to receive. The grace is sufficient for us. It's sufficient for all our needs. As a final example on how not to lose grace, how did Paul deal with this trouble? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Can we all read this together? Because I think we all need this verse in our hearts. Right? That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. From when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a true Christian living out his life in Christ. In hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. He delights. How would we react to all those things? Grace killers. We don't accept them because we can't. Don't put Christ in front of us enough. I'm preaching to myself here as well as you folks. We're all there, aren't we? What a wonderful verse to remember. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A lesson for us all. Finally, as I come near to the end, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As we consider the final point, that grace is the only way forward, we see from verse 7 that Paul was living with an infliction. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a message of Satan, to torment me. I'm sure if I walked around and spoke to each one of your brothers and sisters, many of you would confess that you have a thorn in your flesh, an illness, 
and affliction, a great family problem, financial problem. You have a thorn in your flesh. Problems, doubts about faith. The list is endless. But God's promise to us is that God's grace is sufficient for you. There are thorns, oh yes. There will always be thorns. We may enjoy periods in our lives without pain or problems. Hallelujah, if you are going through those times, dear brother and sister, hallelujah. But that's not the case for many of us. Many of us have got a thorn of some description in our flesh. Our Saviour, you know, knows what we are going through. He knows what we are talking about. How many thorns affected Jesus? How many thorns were in that crown that he wore? Look at the torment and pain he suffered. The ridicule. The humiliation. This was all done for you and me. He knows about every thorn that can go through our flesh. God's grace was sufficient for his son on the cross at Calvary. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall thy glory be. Least I forget thy thorn crown brow. Lead me to Calvary. Least I forget Gethsemane. Least I forget thine agony. Least I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. God's grace is sufficient for you and me. Final verse of that hymn was, and I'll leave this with my prayer for you. Fill me, O Lord, with thy desire. For all who know not thee, then touch my lips with holy fire to speak of Calvary. God's grace is sufficient for you, friends. Amen.